Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So we probably all have had those days where everything seems just to go smoothly. We make our plans, we can follow through on them. Even when setbacks come, we handle them with grace and ease. Well, what if I were to tell you that there are actually research-backed tactics that you can use to make sure that you have these good days on a regular basis? Well, my guest today has written a book with these research-backed tactics. Her name is Caroline Webb. She's the author of the book, How to Have a Good Day, Harness the Power of Behavioral Science to Transform Your Working Life. And in it, she puts together all these research, all this research from psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience to provide tactics for you on how to have a good day, from planning your day, establishing goals, staying focused throughout the day, how to handle difficult conversations, difficult people, how to bounce back from setbacks, um, you name it, she covers it. it, starts from the beginning of the day and goes all the way through to the end. Uh, we have a great conversation where we talk a lot about these things that you can do, a lot of actionable things that you can apply right away into your life. So make sure you take notes. And uh, after you're done listening to the show, check out our show notes at aom.is slash good day, where you can find links to resources that we mentioned throughout the show so you can delve deeper into this topic, as well as find more information about Caroline's book. Caroline Webb, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you've got a book out called How to Have a good day, um, where you use behavioral science, psychology, research from neuroscience on how we can improve our days from our work life to our personal life. But before we get there, I'm curious about the background, like what led up to writing this book? I mean, why did you feel like you needed, was it through your consulting business and you saw problems um, pop up with your clients or maybe in your own life where you're like, man, how can I get more out of my day? Kind of all of the above, actually. Um, I was working for about 15 years with people on uh, how to improve their everyday working lives, and you know that was partly through my my consulting and organisational change and my uh, leadership development work. And what I saw time and again was that you know while a lot of people were you know in good jobs, a lot of people were focused on big worthwhile goals. Often the everyday experience of going from you know one day to the next was actually not that much fun and it's really borne out in the 
the surveys that are out there about uh, the fact that you know half of people don't feel engaged in their work it's sort of terrible numbers when you think about it and even those of us who like our work as I say you know might not have most glorious of experiences every single moment of uh, the week. So I became very interested in the small changes you can make to everyday life uh, to think about how you can build a foundation for, uh, for a more enjoyable and um, um, uh, more successful uh, experience every day. And I always turned to behavioral science for that because my first career was in economics. And I found that the people I worked with were very curious about how the brain worked and uh, you know they were just much more open to any advice I could give I could, I could actually explain why <laughs> why we think and feel and behave the way we do and why the science pointed towards uh, perhaps trying something new and over time what happened was that they would say well is this stuff written down where you translate the science into really practical advice and there are great popular science books out there but actually not so much talking about how this means you might approach a meeting differently or handle your to-do list differently so that's where I come in it's that translation from the science into practice and it seemed as if there was a need and I was delighted to have a chance to fill it so uh, before we get into the the the, the brass tacks of the, the things you've you've mined from behavioral science about how to have a good day let's talk about what do you mean by a good day because I imagine it's not mm. you know you're never going to have uh problems pop up your your toddler isn't going to wet themselves before they get to the toilet that <laughs> happened to me last night uh, you're not gonna have clients who are frustrating so i mean what is a good day yeah you're not going to have a dog barking constantly in the apartment next door i mean just you know say <laughs> by chance um yeah i i think that you know the reality is there's a lot of luck in it right i mean there is a lot of luck that determines whether a day is good or or not but What's interesting in what emerges from the science is we have a lot more control than we think over uh, the quality of our days. And when I was working for all those years with uh, companies and individuals to help them create more positive cultures in their organizations, indeed their, in their families, um, I used to ask them, so what is a good day for you? What is a bad day? And what would it take to get more good days? So I've got a lot of data on what people think is a good day. And it, it really boils down to three things. It's do you feel like you spent your time and directed your attention to the things that matter? Do you feel like you did a good job? And did you enjoy yourself? You know, did, did, you, did you feel like you have the energy at the end of the day to wake up the next day and go through it all again? And these are really the three big ideas that, uh, that sit behind the book. Um, and I think that the, tr the trouble is that if any of those aren't true, then it, it really sort of leads you to feel like it's not a great day. So I'm all about trying to get the small pieces in place that mean that you definitely are focusing on the right things, feeling good about what you're doing and feeling uh, that it's all worthwhile and fun. So yeah, let's get into this brass tacks and how we can do that. Um, one of the things I love about your book is that not only is it comprehensive, like you take us through an entire day and you cover all the different facets you're going to hit during your day, mm -hmm. whether it's setting your goals, planning, being productive, dealing with frustrating individuals, you know, being resilient in the face of setbacks, everything. But you also get very in-depth with each section. And like you said, you, uh, you translate this all this research that's coming out from behavioral economics and psychology and provide brass tacks advice. So let's start from the very beginning. Um, what can we do at the beginning of our day to set us up for a good day? Well, this is one of the most profound bits of science that 
it's in the book, uh, and it relates to the fact that our brains can only process part of reality at any given time. Um, you know, so whatever's around you right now, wherever you are, uh, you look around you, there's lots and lots of objects around you, there's lots of sensations in your body, there's lots of noises that you could hear if you actually paid attention to it. You could look at every tiny carpet fiber in front of you, you could look at every hair on your head. Um, and if we did actually try and consciously pay attention to everything around us, our brains would kind of crash um, like a, an overloaded computer with all of its keys pressed at once. So our brains have quite an elegant solution, which is that subconsciously we're filtering out most of what's going on around us. And we're not aware of it by definition. And the trick here is that it's actually predictable what gets filtered out and what gets filtered in. So in effect, there are certain rules that govern the reality that we perceive. We're all experiencing a really subjective, incomplete version of reality. And once you know what the rules are, you can shift the way that you perceive whatever happens. Now, the way the rules work is that your brain consciously notices anything which resonates with what's already top of mind for you. So in other words, if you're in a bad mood, you spill coffee on yourself in the morning, uh, or you have a terrible commute, you're in a bad mood and your brain will say, okay, you're in a bad mood, so I'll make sure you see everything that confirms the world is a terrible place. And the same goes the other way around. So if you decide to put yourself in a more positive mood, then you suddenly see the world is a more positive place. And the research behind this is really robust. It's, um, you know, some people know the term confirmation bias. Uh, others may have heard the term select, selective attention. And the upshot for us is incredibly positive because it means that we just have to be a bit more deliberate about how we go into and everything that matters in a day. You can do this every morning. You can say, what really matters me, to me today? What's my real aim? What attitude do I want to have? What assumptions do I want to have as I go into the day, knowing that that will shape what you see? So, you know, if you've got a difficult conversation coming up with someone that you think is kind of a jerk, confirmation bias means that your brain will look for evidence that you're right and you'll see everything that will be slightly annoying and you might actually miss anything that suggests that the person is trying to be, you know, more supportive or conciliatory. If you go in checking your assumptions and saying, okay, my aim here is actually to strengthen the relationship and I want to look out for signs that that's possible, you will actually experience it differently. So it's a process I call setting intentions. It can take five seconds as you're going into anything in your day and a lot of the most successful people that I know do this every morning to look across the day and think what do, what filters do I want my brain to apply yeah that's really interesting that the research that's coming about attention basically yeah you're right like what we attend to is reality for us in a yeah. in a weird way and so if you don't if you're not intentional about that you're going to be caught up by anything that comes yeah. your way yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all experiencing this sort of partial view of reality all the time. And you only get a glimpse of it sometimes. I mean, I bought some Nike sneakers for the first time a couple of weeks ago and uh, <laughs> came out of the store. And half of New York is apparently now wearing Nike sneakers. I'd not noticed this before. Um, it's really highly unlikely that they've just bought them. They were there before. I just didn't see them. But now that I am excited about my new pair of Nike sneakers, I'm seeing them all over the place. Or if you buy a new car, you suddenly see 
uh, all the cars on the road that's the same colour or the same model. And this is just the only times that we really get a, a real sense of the fact that, or maybe you come out of a movie and, you know, you're with your other half and you have a completely different view of what happens. <laughs> you know, we sometimes get these glimpses of how subjective our experience of reality is. But, um, you know, m- most of the time we need to actually look at the research uh, to, to really believe it. So, you know, you talk about how a lot of the successful people out there who have good days consistently are very intentional about setting their intentions at the beginning of the mm. day. But, you know, they say, like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> so, I mean, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm going to get my journal out, write down my three big things, over, look over my mission statement, blah, 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 blah. But how do you ensure that you put those good intentions into action? Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, so many people have, uh, you know, try to make positive personal change in their lives and it just is hard to make it stick when you're busy and you've got habits that are well ingrained and lots of demands on you. Um, I'm always about the smallest possible change you can make to have an impact. Um, you know, I'm always encouraging people to shoot really small <laughs> rather than big in thinking about the changes to make. So I, I encourage people to just say, you know, pick a time of day that you know you're going to have a tiny little bit of time to think. It might be, you know, when you're commuting in, but it it, it could also be the night before. Uh, I'm, um, I'm a nighttime person, so I tend to be a little bit more uh, able to think clearly in the evenings than uh, I am first thing in the morning. So for me, you pick the time that works best, and for me, that's the evening, actually the night before. And you just say 10 seconds, you know, Really make it a small thing and link it to something that uh, you do every single day. And then you're far more likely to remember to do it. You're far more likely to actually manage to do it. And if you don't remember and you go halfway through the day and you, you hit a really important conversation, you think, oh, this is one of those moments I should have set intentions. Um, you know, great. You remembered. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back. You want to set up the kind of the neurochemistry of reward rather than the neurochemistry of failure. You want to celebrate anything that you, you manage or remember uh, rather than beating yourself up because the brain likes to repeat things that are rewarding. And, um, you know, so it's, it's really matters to pick a really small goal and then, and then have a go at it. For me, honestly, The time that I most remember to set my intentions, apart from the night before, is as I'm walking to a meeting or a conversation, is just to take that 10 seconds as I'm walking towards the door. And it's just a good prompt for me to say, okay, what really matters to me? Where do I want to put my attention? Okay, good to go. That's all it takes. Yeah. And one of the the cool pieces of advice that you provided on – putting your intentions into action or reminding yourself, and this comes from behavioral economics is I guess rejiggering your environment mm, in a way to yeah. remind you throughout the day that what, you know, I guess it's like refocusing, right? Yeah. It's a really interesting area of uh, the, the research and also highly, highly controversial and disputed. And there's lots of debate about it because it's, um, uh, there have been lots of issues in replicating the results. So this is the research on priming. And the idea is that your brain is really associative. So um, past experiences and, and thoughts are stored in our minds in a way that uh, links one thought with another. Just as you know, you know, when you're daydreaming, you suddenly find yourself thinking about something and you realize there's been a kind of series of stepping stones that you know, has taken you to that thought that feels quite distant. So 
that that's a real thing that's happening in your mind that there are these stepping stones so you know you might have a particular outfit that you know you once wore where you absolutely knocked the ball out of the park on a presentation or an interview you put it on again does it remind you of that day that you absolutely aced yeah absolutely it's a real thing and the, the priming research suggests that it creates enough of the same state of mind that it can trigger some of the same behaviors uh, just to sort of have an object or a piece of clothing or whatever nearby that, um, that actually reminds you of a particular state of mind. Where things get controversial is the idea that you can somehow prime other people because I mean, you don't really know what their associations might be, you know. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you might put a picture of a professor on your wall thinking it's going to make you more intelligent and everybody else around you because it will remind you of being intelligent. Maybe, maybe one of your colleagues had a traumatic experience at college and this is the last thing that they want to see. Um, so you've got to be very careful about assuming you can do it to other people. But... If you can be really self-aware about the associations you have with, you know, high-performance states of mind, you know, particular, uh, particular place that, you know, you all seem to think clearly, you know, maybe it's a particular window seat or, you know, a nice cafe, you know, those, those effects are real in your mind. If you've got the association there, then you can hack it and use it. So there's something to superstitions, like, you know, the, <laughs> the, the baseball player who puts his socks on in a certain way or doesn't step on the foul line. Yeah. If they believe it. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it, it's funny. I mean, it, it really, and, and of course we laugh at it when it's someone else's and yet when it's our own, it just feels like, you know, the right thing to do. <laughs> right. It's like uh, Dumbo's f- feather, right? Like he had his feather he could yeah. fly with it, but he could always fly. Like he just thought yeah. it worked. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I really encourage people to just, it's about self-awareness. It's about knowing what's going to create a certain state of mind in you. And the more that you uh, strengthen that association, then the, the more reliable it is. I mean, it, <laughs> there's, a, there's an example I give uh, in my book, which is um, Donna Summer's I Feel Love. And uh, I kind of regret having put it in the book because now everybody kind of quotes it back <laughs> at me. <laughs> but, you know, I have a particular associate. The very first time I went to, you know, Blue Man Group show years and years ago and there was this finale and they played the song and it was incredibly uplifting and energizing. And, um, and you know, it always reminds me of that. So whenever I'm about to go on stage and give a huge talk um, or you know, do any kind of performance, I hum it to myself or I kind of even listen to it if I can. And, yeah, you know, it puts me right back there. I, mean, I think we all have that with music. We know it happens with music, but the trick is to know that there are lots of other things you can use as well to create the same effect. So another thing you talked about as far as implementing your intentions are these things called um, uh, implementation intentions. Is that what it's called? Mm, yeah. Um, this is from, um, again, from behavioral economics. Well, behavioral economics is sort of, I mean, the boundaries between behavioral economics and, and psychology are insanely blurry. I mean, I think it's really sort of economists getting getting back to the roots of what the discipline you know, economics used to be called moral philosophy and it was about thinking about human behavior. And for quite a long time, it sort of drifted away uh, from that 
as a, a central focus. And behavioral economics is really just sort of re-engaging with the human condition, um, the idea that human beings are fallible. And as a result, you know, economists are looking at topics that psychologists have been looking at for decades. <laughs> so the boundaries between the two disciplines are pretty blurry. Um, so implementation intentions, yeah, this is great. Oh my gosh, this makes so much difference to your ability to get stuff done. Um, basically, what you're doing is you're lightening the load on your brain. Uh, I mentioned before that your brain has limited capacity to process and we need to be aware of the limitations. You can save your brain efforts if you're trying to remember to do something by deciding on a particular cue. So instead of saying, oh, I must exercise today, I really, really must exercise today, you say, when I come out from lunch, I will put on my sneakers, whether they're Nike sneakers or not, <laughs> and I will go exercise at that point. And you're way more likely, by defining a really specific time and a really specific cue, you're way more likely to allow your brain to remember that this is actually something you want to do. Um, when I am faced with a bank of elevators, then I will take the stairs. Um, when I'm walking to a meeting, then I will remember to set my intentions. When I've got my, my hand on the door of the meeting that I'm walking into, then I will definitely set my intentions if I haven't done it by then. And these when-thens, as I call them, or implementation intentions, as they're called by um, the behavioral scientists, um, just have been shown to increase your chances of achieving your goals by something like 300%. Wow. And that's quite a, big, <laughs> quite a big uptick in getting things done. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. 
That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. That's amazing. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, this this solves a problem of cognitive overload, and this is a problem that's facing you know a lot of knowledge workers these days or information. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want, I, I, I don't, they're calling them something different every time. Um, but besides the implementation intentions, what can we do to reduce? cognitive overload so that we can make better decisions because yeah the research shows that once we we're, we're overloaded cognitively we make poorer decisions um, that's right so that's right what can we do to offload some of that cognitive overload well you know there's a theme coming back here again which is just you know understanding how your brain works you've got working memory which is what we use to complete all of our conscious tasks it's like it's like working memory on a computer. It's, you know, it's what you're using to listen to me and what I'm using to speak to you and to hold um, ideas in, in mind. And it, we used to be thought that we could hold about seven things in mind at once. And it turns out actually research is really homing in on number more like three or four. <laughs> so, you know, of course, when you think about how much you're trying to juggle, you know, we're so, we've got so much more on our minds than that a lot of the time. And, it really is true if you feel that your mind is full. Uh, it's it's it maybe a sort of poetic way of describing it, but that's pretty much what, what what's going on. So there are a few things you can do. I mean, first of all, you know that um, you, you need to know that strategic downtime is as necessary to your performance as you know the hard uh, the hard graft. In other words, um, we make better decisions 
when it's not been long since we took a break because our brain isn't as tired and isn't as full. And this has been shown with all sorts of uh, research, including um, people buying suits. Um, you know, they interviewed people in, in malls and found that the longer it was since people um, had taken a break, the more knee-jerk and their, their, their shopping decisions were. But, it, you know, it, it's true in more serious situations too. Uh, there was some classic work done in looking at parole decisions and how parole decisions by, made by judges become much more black and white. Basically, prisoners are much less likely to get parole uh, the longer it is since the judges have taken a break uh, when they come up in front of the panel of judges. Um, so we're more sophisticated and nuanced in our decision-making, wiser in our decision-making if we're more diligent about taking breaks. And that's kind of counterintuitive for most of us. So that's, um, you know, one very big thing. And another big thing is just being aware that your brain gets full and noticing that when you are overloaded, uh, that it's possible to actually strip out some of the noise. And, you know, there are loads of techniques for this, but one of the things that I usually do when I'm feeling overloaded is just to say, okay, uh, what's, <laughs> I know it sounds sort of obvious, but, you know, what is truly the most important thing and what is the very first small step towards that? And it, it's just so clarifying, especially the second bit. What's the very first small step towards that? Um, and it just really strips back a lot of the noise so that you're focusing on the thing that's really most important. I could go on. There's, yeah, lots, there's of, lots, lots of technique. There's lots of yeah. that. But, but an, another aspect you hit on, you know, I think it causes overload in a lot of people's life, not just in business, but their personal life, is the inability to say no. Um, mm. and it frightens people. They feel bad. They feel guilty. Yeah. It fills them with anxiety. Um, anything from behavioral science or psychology that you know, help people say no if they don't feel yeah. like it absolutely and um the thing to know from the science here is that uh one of the challenges with saying no is that we feel that we are um we're obviously saying something which is unpleasant for the other person to hear you know maybe there's a commitment we've already made and we have to back out or maybe we're just saying no sorry you can't have my time and i can't do this whatever so we don't like we don't like that sort of slight sense of conflict that we're creating and we're kind of right to to not want to uh to to aggravate the other person because what happens when someone else feels um feels challenged by something that you're telling them is that their brains go on the defensive and when people's brains are on the defensive they don't think as clearly it's a whole set of research around that the fact that there's actually less activity in people's prefrontal cortex where the more sophisticated thinking happens when uh, when they're feeling even mildly stressed. So you say no to someone, they go on the defensive. They're not able to think as clearly. They're not going to be as kind of supportive and expansive in their thinking <laughs> in how they respond to you saying no. But the trick then is actually to say no without putting them on the defensive. And it, it's not hard to do, it's just quite different to how we normally do it. The trick is to start with the thing that you're saying yes to and if you start with the things that you're saying yes to, so first of all, start with something warm and appreciative and, you know, thank you for, you know, your invitation, blah, blah, blah. We often forget to do that when we're uh, stressed about saying no. Then say, I'm really uh, excited to um, tell you about this book that I've been working on for the last four years and it's, 
think things are going absolutely fantastically. Um, it's very intense, blah, 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 blah. Uh, as a result, I'm having to make, and this is where the no comes in, as a result, I'm having to make some quite tough choices about what I do and don't do with deadlines looming. Uh, and regrettably, that means I'm simply going to have to say no uh, to, to your very kind request. And then you end with whatever it is that you can say that also feels warm and supportive without committing too much of your time or resources. Perhaps there's someone else that you can point them towards, but at the very least, you can wish them well. And this formula of start with warmth, then explain what your yes is, then say no, end with warmth, is really, really reliable in creating a different response in the other person because it doesn't, they can't help but get a little bit interested or excited by your yes even if they know where it's going and you get a different response as a result. Yeah, that's really interesting because typically the way I've done it is I'll say no first and I'll explain why I'm saying yeah. no, right? Because I'm yeah. busy working on my book or this, but you say start yeah. off with that first. Yeah, because we, we, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, we're so, the way that we're all programmed to say no is, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, but. Right. And the other person's sort of heart sinks immediately and then they're not really able to engage properly with what you go on to say. So you're really just saying the same thing, but you're turning it around so that you're saying, uh, great to hear from you. Um, things are going great with blah, blah, blah. That means, unfortunately, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it is a really subtle thing. I find myself, even at this point, I'll write, I'm so sorry, and then I have to kind of go back and edit my email and put space at the top and then write the, the other stuff. So we are, you know, if we care about other people, we are very... Um, it's quite hard to let go of starting with the sorry. <laughs> right. but, uh, but, you know, believe me, it just creates such a different dynamic in the, in the conversation. And you still get to say sorry. It's just that you, um, you wrap it up in a way that is so much more uh, engaging for the other person and also helps them understand the choices that you're making. Yeah. Um, so a large part of our days are spent dealing with other people. And that can be the source of most of our frustration because people <laughs> are their own agents. They've got their own agendas. They want to, they have their own needs and wants. And oftentimes they don't line up with yours, uh, needs and wants. And sometimes people are just irksome. Um, That's a good word. <laughs> so I mean, what, what can we do? What is, what does the research say on what we can do to, to manage relationships so that we can have a good day, even if someone, um, is giving us trouble or giving us grief. Yeah. Um, well, you can do, for starters, uh, what I call setting collaborative intentions. It goes back to what I said right at the beginning, which is just knowing that the intentions you have going into a conversation will shape the way that it plays out. Um, it certainly has shaped the way that you perceive it. So just being, um, you know, suppose you're going into a conversation with someone who you know is going to be irksome. I love that word. Um, you, you, you know that you will perceive the conversation differently if your expectation of irksomeness is absolutely top of mind than if your desire to find a collaborative solution is top of mind, right? So there's just, there's, there's some basics there about knowing that your perceptions of an interaction are shaped by your intentions. But um, more broadly, I think one of the things that's really helpful to know is that it's statistically unlikely that this irksome person is actually a psychopath. Um, <laughs> you know, the chances are that something has put their brains on the defensive. And that's because, you know, I mentioned before, that 
you know, when people's brains perceive some kind of threat, it can be really small, doesn't really matter almost what it is. If they're perceiving anything which might be a threat to their competence or autonomy or sense of purpose or fairness or inclusion or being respected, um, that can be enough to put their brains on the defensive. And on the defensive, as I mentioned before, there's less sophisticated thinking going on. So they're just basically not their best selves. And that's when you get people being, you know, a bit snappish or sulky or uh, avoidant. I mean, they're all versions of... uh, fight, flight, freeze, which are these sort of basic defensive responses that your brain launches in the face of any kind of threat. So just knowing that most dysfunctional behavior that you encounter is actually the result of some really subconscious thing that has put them on the defensive, I find incredibly helpful just to start off with because it changes your your demeanor towards them. And even better if you can actually ask yourself what could possibly have created this defensive reaction because then it gives you a chance to have a bit of fun in thinking about I wonder what might have created this you know maybe I remind them of a teacher who threw a stapler at their head Um, that's a terrible thing to say but (laughs) you know you can you can put a smile on your face by thinking about the different things that might genuinely have be creating this this behavior in them and by changing your demeanor towards them that's usually enough to change the quality of the interaction and that's because our emotions are strangely contagious um our, our emotions have been shown to sync up within five minutes even if we're not uh not working on the same thing or even talking to the other person so the way that you carry yourself is going to have a big impact. Um, and of course, there are other sort of more involved techniques you can use, but this is stuff you can use even without uh, really having an in-depth conversation with the other person. This is just about managing your own entry into the, the interaction with the irksome person. Right. So something you say in the book is assume good person, bad circumstance. Exactly. Yeah. Good person, bad circumstances. Because there's a thing in psychology called the fundamental attribution error. And basically, it's it's that if I show up to work and I'm feeling uh, cranky and slow, I know it's because I didn't sleep well last night. Um, and if someone else shows up and they're cranky and slow, you think that they're an unpleasant person and they're highly inefficient. In other words, when we see bad behavior in other people, we ascribe it to bad character rather than bad circumstances. When it's in ourselves, we know that most of our bad behavior is caused by circumstances. So it's a slightly clunky phrase, but just reminding yourself good person, bad circumstances is a really good way of not getting so wound up by people's bad behavior around you. I love that. It's great for if you're a parent, especially when your kids get cranky. Usually they're cranky for a reason, not because they're Evil. Uh, no, it's very unlikely that they're actually <laughs> right. exactly. And people are just, you know, big toddlers. It's just that, you know, we wrap it up <laughs> in, you know, grown up clothes. I mean, so much of the same, you know, same dynamics are going on. Um, it's just that, you know, we we forget that, you know, we're we're very sensitive to the things around us, and and you know, we are affected by whether we feel uh, good about ourselves, well, so is everybody else. And as soon as anyone feels anything that challenges their sense of, sense of social standing or the sense of self-respect, you're going to get bad behavior. Um, so another part of dealing with individuals, whether it's in your family or uh, in business, is providing feedback, right? Yeah. Um, 
and the challenge is like, how do you deliver that feedback? So one, the person isn't put in that defensive mode and they don't, they just reject it. And two, like they actually listen and take it to heart and actually implement it. I used this yesterday with a friend, actually. <laughs> so uh, you're you're right to to keep on, you know, pointing out that everything I write about. I mean, you know, it, it's it's about work, but it's about family, it's about friends, it's about human human endeavor, really, in general. Um, so yeah, giving feedback to to people. I mean, as you say, the challenge is giving. Feedback is almost perfectly designed to put people on the defensive because, I mean, there's nothing more perfectly designed to do it. Um, So how do you do it so that they can actually think clearly as you're you're sharing your very helpful observations? Um, There are a few techniques that I like. I mean, my favorite one that I use all the time uh, is... um, is to actually start with saying, what I like about what you've done is blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then what would make me like, like it even more is blah, blah, blah. So you're, you're basically giving input without making the other person wrong. Um, and that's a really good thing, if, good, good technique to use if you, you, know, you're, you genuinely have a range of things that you want to share with someone. Um, so that's, that's interesting because it's not – because like I've heard you know, I've heard like the compliment sandwich, right, where you say yeah. start with something good and then you go, but – like what you're saying, yeah. instead of doing the but – you say, and you do an and, and this is what you could do, yeah. so I like it more. So it's sort of like that, that positive no you were talking about, stay positive. Yeah, but, I mean, the praise sandwich, everyone's heart just sinks, right? Cause you, right, you know you, it's coming. And the, the, one of the reasons is that our brains are much more attuned to threat than they are to reward. They're always looking out for both. But if I say to you, oh, great job, you did great. Um, now, here are five things that you should change. Um, your brain is naturally attuned to listening out for threats. And so the fact that uh, your, your praise is so vague and so general and, the, and, the, and the, the things that you're supposed to work on are so specific and so numerous means that that praise is almost meaningless. So the trick is to make the praise as specific and concrete and fulsome as possible so that you're not just glossing it. it. You know, you're talking about what I liked about what you did was this, because when, it, when you did this, then that happened and it really made a difference to X, Y, Z so that it actually gets properly heard. And then the framing of what would make me like it even more suggests, you know, that you're making uh, suggestions that are about, you know, personal growth rather than, you're an idiot and you need to, you need to fix this. It's just a very different framing. And there are a bunch of these sorts of techniques that are real, just really tiny twists on things that seem quite familiar to us, but there are reasons why a small change in the way you do it will make it land better in the other person's brain. So like we said at the beginning, having a good day doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be flawless. Um, You're not going to have setbacks Etc. But yeah. so the the challenge then is developing the skill of maintaining a cool head when setbacks happen because you want that cool head because then you make better decisions and you can actually deal with the problem. So any insights from psychology and behavioral science on maintaining that cool head and bouncing back from setbacks so it doesn't yeah. ruin your good day? Yeah, there's a ton. There's a ton of great research on emotional resilience. Um, and it's uh, it's incredibly useful to have, 
your favorite techniques in your back pocket. No, not everybody's the same. Um, I, I teach them all and then find that sort of people gravitate towards one or two that they can use in the heat of the moment. So one that I like uh, is a technique called distancing. And what's what that involves is putting yourself at a distance from the situation that's happening or that has just happened that's unpleasant. So, you know, imagine, uh, I mean, just yesterday I found myself walking in absolutely the wrong direction to go to a meeting, right? Small, it's a sort of small thing that seems ridiculous when you say it out loud, but, it, you know, it can make a day go in the wrong direction because it meant that obviously I was going to be late and, you know, so what do you do? You, you, there are a number of things you can do, but the very quick thing to do is to actually stop freaking out by saying to yourself, what am I going to think about this in a week's time? Or what would my best friend advise me? Or what would an incredibly wise person advise me? What would I advise someone else? All of these techniques put you in a position where you're able to remove yourself from the immediate panic or annoyance or anger of something that's happening and it's been shown that that reduces the level of defensiveness in your brain and therefore allows you to think more clearly and my go-to question is often what will I think about this when I look back in a year's time if it's a bigger topic than just simply walking the wrong way down the street um, it's a really quick quick technique and it then allows you to do you know some of the more in involved uh, resilience boosting techniques because your you kind of more sophisticated brain is a little bit more back back online I love that. Um, so another challenge of having a good day is keeping that motivation up throughout the day, right? You can ha have your perfect morning routine where you set your intentions, you, you do, you're doing all the right moves, but then you hit that lull where you're just like, you're not, you're not motivated to keep it going. Um, so what can individuals do to maintain that energy, that pep, mojo, motive, whatever you want to call it uh, throughout the yeah. day? Yeah. Um, well, in one of the chapters in my, towards the end of my book, I, I list actually seven killer techniques that research suggests will pretty instantly boost your, uh, your energy. Energy in different senses, you know, mental, emotional energy, not just physical energy. Um, one that I really like, which is a bit counterintuitive, is generosity. Um, now, this is weird because, you know, when you're at a low ebb, the last thing that you think you want to do is actually find ways to be helpful and useful and incredibly delightful to other people. Uh, but actually, research suggests that it is one of the quickest ways to, uh, to give yourself a boost. And it doesn't have to be much. It can be just paying an unexpected and totally unnecessary compliment to someone on something. It could be going out of your way to do something that you didn't need to do, you know, allowing something to get, someone to go in front of you at the store, <laughs> you know, in line. Um, allowing someone to, you know, give, giving up your seat. There was a, a day uh, some time back, uh, the sun is blazing today, but uh, not long ago, the rain was pouring and I was carrying my groceries in uh, double bags, uh, paper bags. And there was a woman in front of me and the rain was so heavy that she was actually also carrying a paper bag. She had shoes in the bag for some reason. I don't know why. But the rain was making her bag disintegrate. So I went over to her and offered her the outside bag <laughs> of my groceries. And then, you know, obviously she was pleased. Uh, but more to the point, 
I was absolutely uh, full of energy and excitement at how amazingly <laughs> helpful I had been. I mean, you know, I shouldn't really admit this perhaps in public, but the point is that it's a win-win. You end up feeling great about yourself as well as, of course, being helpful to the other person. And I think it's partly because it reminds you that you've got something to give even when you're worn down. And it also makes you feel a bit more connected to humanity. And, and we know that feeling connected to other people is actually a very sweet reward for, for our very social brains. So that's one example of the seven techniques that are in, in that particular part of the book. That's great. Um, well, Caroline, this has been a fascinating conversation and we've literally scratched the surface of your book. I mean, we could have gone into setting goals, overcoming procrastination, making a brain-friendly to-do list, lots of great stuff. So where can people learn more about your book and your work? Thank you for asking. Uh, so my website is probably the best place to, to start and that's carolineweb.co. That's not .com. Turns out there are lots of Caroline Webs in the world and I have .co, not .com. So carolineweb.co. And there are lots of things there that uh, people might find interesting. They can download a free chapter of the book. They can, uh, if they already have the book, they can download a free discussion guide to talk about it with, uh, with friends, family, colleagues. And there's a quiz also that you can take uh, that gives you an idea of which particular parts of the book might be most useful. Because I have written the book so you can dive in anywhere that's relevant to you. Um, so, you know, if you, if you pick up the book and the thing that's on your mind is a difficult conversation that's coming up this afternoon, then you can go straight to chapter nine. And in fact, you can even go to the shaded box summary at the end of the chapter and just read that if you, if you really, really are pushed for time. So I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that the book will be eminently practical for even the most busy of your listeners. Fantastic. Well, Caroline Webb, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was Caroline Webb. She's the author of the book, How to Have a Good Day, and that's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And really go pick it up. One of the best books on productivity I've ever read. And you can find more information about Caroline and her work at carolineweb.co. And also make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash good day. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show and I've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.